I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, does anyone know where you can find a holster for a handgun that has a light on it for nocturnal defense against feral hogs? (laughs) Well, maybe not, maybe so. We're going to find out along with what is the best all-round rifle. We've got two votes here, 30-06 Springfield, 7-millimeter Remington Magnum. Who's the winner? Let's find out on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hey, welcome, everyone. Got several letters here from our patrons on Patreon. And one of uh, these gentlemen, his name is Guy, and he's looking for a holster for his backup protection gun when he's hunting feral hogs. Says he's got a friend who's been attacked a few times or charged, and at night you can't necessarily see that black hog coming. You need a light on your handgun. Well, how do you get a handgun with some kind of a light on it in a holster? This is getting confusing. Let's just see what he has to say. I'm not sure anyone will read this while well, we're reading it, guy. Uh, but uh, oh, he says he read some article of mine from six years ago. Wow. And he, because of that, purchased a 10 millimeter in a Rock Island Armory TAC Ultra threaded handgun. It's a hunk of a gun with a five and a half inch barrel, 9.25 inches overall length. And since it's that big, I'll likely need to get a customized holster for it. The gun has a rail for lights, and that's my question. I plan to hunt with a rifle, but then use my 10 millimeter for times when the hogs get too close. My farmer friend often hunts at night or dusk, and I might get two holsters, one with the light and one without. But does anybody reading this use a weapon light on their 10 millimeter for hog defense? (laughs) And we're throwing it out there, folks, because I certainly don't. I've used the 10 millimeter on hogs and found it to be pretty darn effective. But I've never thought about putting a light on it or shoving it in a holster with a light. So if anyone can help us out, uh, write in, let us know, and we'll get back to Guy on this one. Now, here is someone who has an idea about the best all-around cartridge. This is from, well, his name gives it away. He puts himself down as 7mm Herald. And uh, he says, the only question I have, Ron, is how come the 7mm Remington Magnum is not labeled the best cartridge for North America with tough 150 grain plus bullets? I think you have Everything covered, plus the ballistics are still awesome for something that's been around since 1963. 
Well, I wrote back and said, of course. Ah, good one. As I've said in a few of my videos, the 7mm Remington Magnum is the perfect all-rounder, just as you say. But if manufacturers labeled it as such, they'd lose sales of all the rest. <laughs> so my upcoming 7mm book will have details on not just the 7mm Remington Magnum, but on all the 7mm, and you will be amazed at how many there are. Hope to have that out later this fall. All right, now let's get back to some of the surprise questions the team has put together for us, as usual. Here's one from Samuel in North Carolina. There are so many different cartridges that are out in the market. My question is, which cartridge calibers in millimeters or anything at all have not been made yet? I'd be willing to bet that there has to be some caliber that has yet to be made, and I want to know <laughs> what's not what cartridges haven't been made yet. Any he means in a specific caliber. So okay, commercially, I can think we start with a 17 millimeters. Then we go 20, then 22, 24. So there's no 23. There's one. 25, 26, 27, 28. Uh, not really a 29. There are some, like the 303 British, but that takes a 0 .310 bullet. That's not going to fit in a 29. Who can think of a 29? I know there's one out there at least. Then 30, of course, full of that. Oh, the, I skipped the 284s. Got to have a lot of those. 270, 28s, 29s, 30s, 31. That would be that 303 British, I think. Um, 32s bunch of those 33s third 338s and there's some yeah, th 35s now you got to remember some of these are well most of them are bullet diameters and they'll fit a variety of bores they'll change up the bore size a little bit so some of these cartridges and rifles are measured by the the land to land or the bore size dimension and some of them are groove to groove bullet diameter dimensions so you get a little bit confusing there so 29, 30, 32, 33, 34, 34, nope, 348 Winchester, 35s, 36, 36, I can't think of a 36, 37, 38, 37, 375 H&A, 375 Ruger, um, yeah, 38s, I can't think 38, 38 Special, but that's really a 35, 357 Magnum, 38 Special, the same, um, so 38, 39, I can't think of a 39. Anyone out there know a 39? 39. There is a 36. 366. That's a 9.3 by 62. Hey, this is fun. <laughs> How are you guys doing out there? Are you up there into the 40s yet? 41, you get your 416s. And 44s, of course. Um, 45s. I don't know if any yeah, 460, but that's really a 40, 458 bullet. 460 um, Weatherby Magnum. 470s, Nitro Express, 480 Ruger. God, they just don't stop, guys. 49, 49. Okay, let's cut it off at 49. I can't think of any. Then we go to the 50 BMG, and there's a four, few more 50s out there. So we've got that covered up to 50. And then there's a 600 Nitro Express, a 700 Nitro Express. Oh, then you get into Miller Story stuff, and the sky's the limit. But we didn't go down to the bottom here. We started at 17. There are some non-commercial proprietary cartridges in Wildcats that are tinier than 17 caliber. I've seen 
or at least heard of some 19s. That's in between the 17 and the 20. I don't know about any 18s, but I once shot a Wildcat 14. Crazy. 0.14 inch diameter bullet. And I've heard of some as light as 12. And I'm sure someone's played around with them even smaller than that. So that's a fun little topic. Hey, if you can think of any cartridges that are really obscure and oddballs, send them in and we'll uh, flesh this out a little bit next time. Well, that's a good, thoughtful question there, Sam, or at least it makes you... Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. To think. Here's from uh, Sam in Texas. Thanks for what you do. I want to hear about the consistency of rifle related to its muzzle crown. Our 11 degree muzzle crowns with no chamfer. Like I see on some bench ref rifles better. Um, oh boy, he goes on and on here. I'm going to try to paraphrase. I see the benefit. Recessed crown. Okay, recessed crown, 11 degree crown. Uh, 11 degrees, gas escapes. Yeah, he's talking about all of this good stuff about muzzle crowns and the chamfers at the end of your barrel. And why is this stuff important? And is there going to be an advantage in an 11 degree crown? Uh, this is one of those topics that many of us have heard about, but don't fully understand. And I may be one of them. But here's how I understand it. You can get a recessed crown, meaning the muzzle of your rifle is recessed, steps down before the actual crown or the end of the muzzle. So figure uh, on the muzzle barrel where the rifling ends, essentially the barrel ends, the rifling ends and the bullet leaves, you can leave a rim of, of steel around that protruding beyond it for protection against 
any kind of a damage should your muzzle hit the ground or like a lot of guys, at least in the old days, rolled around with our rifles with the muzzle pointed down in the, in the truck, <laughs> getting gravel in it and all sorts of stuff. You can really ding up a muzzle crown if there's no protection there. So they do that extended barrel to cover it up. But the crown itself, not the recessed crown, but the the edge of the muzzle, and I guess you should call that the crown. It's not really crown, more more of a bevel. So where the, the rifling exits, you, you give it a, a four degree bevel, a seven degree bevel, an 11 degree. At what angle should you bevel that out? If any, should you just leave it straight? So there are some arguments that if the bevel angle matches the bevel, shall we say, of your boat tail bullet, if you have 11 degree boat tail bullet, shouldn't you have an 11 degree crown? So the idea is that all of the gases emerge around that bullet evenly. You don't want a ding, a damage, a cut, or something in the edge of that exit part of the barrel so the gases can jet out one side more strongly than the other and then disrupt the bullet, push it to one side or another. That's the whole idea with protecting the muzzle, the crown, and all this stuff. But is there an advantage in having an 11 degree versus a 7? Do you have to match up with the boat tail of your bullet perfectly? Um, or should you not have one at all? Because obviously then gases are all going to escape evenly around the bullet. I don't have the absolute answer, and I'm not sure there is an absolute answer because you see so many different options. So people out there, and I'm thinking now really some barrel makers, gunsmiths who really work on this accuracy stuff and or target shooters who've played around with different options have we got a good solid answer on this do do most of us as typical hunters um, even if we're real accuracy nuts just for the hunting and the field use do we need to fret about this at all when we're buying a rifle and say well i'm hoping i'm going to use this long boat tail bullet and we do the research and find out it has an 11 degree boat tail do we need to specify a muzzle to match that and if we don't how difficult is it to hone one it seems to me it's fairly easy to get in there and hone the chamfer at the muzzle to a different angle or even clean it up. I know you can do that. I've even bought little tools from uh, Brownells and it just cleans up the crown by sticking a little pilot in there and you rub it around a little bit and it cleans it up. So you get rid of those damaging dings and stuff. So it is something worth thinking about, but I don't know that we need to fret about it too much unless you're someone like Sam here, who's really interested in maximizing his accuracy the way it sounds. So um, he also adds something here in the end about a Sierra Pro Hunter. I found a flat base Sierra Pro Hunter 120 grain 7 millimeter. I was shooting it better with a 7 millimeter 08 than was my 130 grain boat tail. So I started thinking that the flat base would have no metal protruding in the rear as the boat tail does. So that if the edge of the recessed crown is creating more turbulence, the boat tail bullet may suffer more than the flat base bullet. And that's a nice theory. So... I uh, hope this question will be of your interest to share. Well, we shared it, Sam, and we're going to wait for some really good answers from folks. But that is my best take on it for now. All right, now we're going to go straight up from Texas into North Dakota. Get a little cooler up there. Todd says he's been watching my uh, shows and reading you know, or listening to my podcasts. He's gotten back into hunting since moving to North Dakota. Deer are by a lottery um, his question is muzzleloaders. Is the muzzleloader season for deer in would give me a second opportunity to deer hunt? Okay. So I might take me four or five more years to actually draw a buck tag. So I don't currently own a muzzleloader. 
or much experience with them, is four months enough time to gain proficiency with a muzzle-loading rifle after I draw a tag. Oh, I get what you're driving at here, Todd. You don't want to necessarily spend money on a muzzle-loading rifle unless you get that tag. Okay, gotcha. That's not a bad option. Yeah, four months is plenty of time. It's really not that complicated. The shooting aspect of it is the same as with any other rifle. You got a little bit longer lag time from when you go bang and the lock time happens and the bullet leaves and everything. Obviously, slower uh, muzzle velocities, your trajectories are going to be more looping and all the rest of it. But like any other firearm, you just need to learn that stuff. The, I think what you're probably worried about is loading it and maintaining it and all those other things. And obviously, you can read about that stuff. But as soon as you pick one up, read about the steps involved. And they're not that many. I mean, you, you want to clean the oil out of your barrel and then you get the right quantity of powder and a little powder measure thing. Several of them are sold. You pour the powder down the barrel and then you seat your bullet on top of it, push it in with your starting ramrod, just a short little starter rod. And once it's started down into the bore, they're pretty tight. Then you take your long ramrod and you finish seating it and you learn how to seat it with, we'll say, two or three fairly stiff to make sure it's seated. You don't want to leave an air gap in there. Get a little routine like that built up. And then you go back to the rear, the action of the rifle, and you put a cap on the nipple, unless it's a flintlock, and then you got to open your pan and fill that with powder. But that's just your priming device. And then it's a matter of cocking the hammer and taking your shot. And you might have uh, a one-stage trigger. You might have a, a double trigger. You pull the first one to set it, and you got a light, light set trigger. Whatever the system you've got, you can learn to shoot that pretty effectively in a day. Um, if you just want to take a couple, three shots and then wait a few days and do it again and again, yeah, it'll take you a few months. But carry it around, load it and shoot a lot on the range. And then if you can, get out into a big pasture somewhere where you can pretend you're hunting and get the feel of it that way um, and learn how to reload it quickly in case you need a follow-up shot and all that. It'll come to you fairly quickly. So definitely four months is more than enough time. Put in for that tag. And if you draw it, you've got plenty of time to get your rifle just make sure you've got one scoped out and somebody actually has it. These days with the way things are going, out of stock, out of stock, none in inventory, it's getting pretty crazy out there. So you might be uh, looking to get one a little bit early anyway, because they're just plain fun. You know, even if you never draw that tag, who knows? They don't cost all that much. At least they didn't used to. I haven't bought one for years. Of course, you've also got the option. I don't know what North Dakota's laws are but you might be able to use a modern muzzle loader. And those are a little bit different, but still you just have to learn how it works, what its mechanism is and how fast it will shoot. And if you can shoot sabot bullets, little plastic sleeve with a lighter, smaller diameter bullet in it, you can shoot a little further and a little faster because you have a higher BC and more velocity and such. So there are some things to study there. All right. Now we're going to go over to New York where David asks us something. Let's see. He's a big fan of me. Oh, I like it so far. <laughs> he likes my YouTube channel. Thanks me for the great content. Well, thank you, David, for watching and uh, that nice compliment. I hunt with friends and family down in Georgia. We'll go after nuisance feral pigs on farms at night. Carry sidearms. So we have another sidearm on the pig hunt here in case of a wounded pig. Um... My question is, what type of bullet should I use back up against a wounded or charging pig? The most experienced hunter in our group, 
who has been charged and he's gone to his pistol twice. He swears by his 45 ACP with hardballs or occasionally a 40 Smith & Wesson with an expanding hollow point. My best option, and I can't justify buying another pistol for just this, but my best option is a 9mm with a 4-inch barrel. Yeah, not exactly what you would think of as a hog stopper there. In the past, I've carried 147 grain full metal jack with a flat nose. The rumors being that a round nose will refuse a bone while the flat nose will drive deep and true. That's not quite true, but you're on the right track here. I have several hollow point options too, but I'd like to hear your opinion. Thanks, sir. Continue the great work. P.S. Your evangelizing on the 7mm 08 Remington has my blessing as I've taken pigs from 80 to 180 pounds from 80 to 150 yards out with my 7 millimeter and 140 grain soft points. Boy, that's good stuff. All right. Now, what kind of a bullet? Yeah, you're on the right track with this flat nose. Traditionally, flat-nosed bullets are known for straight-line penetration. They don't veer off to the sides. Round nose, pretty much the same thing. What's happening with a an ogive on the front of your bullet and then penetration is that your bullet strikes the target, and if you have, say, a bone on one side and flesh on the other, or a tougher muscle on one side than the other, the more friction on the one side would push your bullet off to that the other side, and then it would start to veer off target, it would start to tumble, and a number of things. And you can see this even plastic gel medium or wax or anything you shoot in with a long uh, secant ogive bullet. And even if it's a full metal jacket, it'll veer off to the side with the consistency you would imagine of gel. It shouldn't do that, but it does. So that's why you would want a flat nose. But I don't know that round noses are any less effective. The, the round on the front nose of a round nose bullet is usually pretty minimal. They tend to keep going. And just recently on an Africa trip, a gentleman took a hippo with a round nose solid and it appeared to take a, a straight track all the way back, a long ways back to a big 400 grain bullet from a 416 Rigby. And then and, uh, another a 450 Rigby with another bullet round nose on an elephant that went straight. So they seem to be going straight too. But if you don't want to take a chance on it, just go with that flat nose bullet. And I think it'll be fine. Now, the 147 grain bullet, I think, is the right one to go with in your 9mm. But instead of a full metal jacket, oh, you said it has a flat nose. So you should be all right there. Yeah, just get a heavy bullet. You're not so interested in velocity on things like this because that hog is going to be right there. You just need to have enough mass in that bullet for maximum momentum minimal or no expansion so it just keeps driving through i one time wasn't charged by a hog but uh, i shot this pretty good sized feral pig in texas with a 10 millimeter handgun and it was obviously wounded and didn't really know which where where i was which way to go so it came running toward me um, i could just tell by its body language it wasn't charging me i so some people might might have thought that I can I can understand that you get excited you think oh my gosh here he comes but he was running toward me and I shot him and I hit him in the head uh, and dropped him right there you know essentially a base of the ear coming at me and went in and that was it so that was a 10 millimeter it certainly did the job yes you're right the nine millimeter is not exactly optimum but Hey, as I often said, Phil Schumacher, a master guide up in Alaska, once had to use his uh, little nine millimeter with 100. I think he was using 147 grain um, hard cast bullets from Buffalo Bore, if I remember. But he was able to terminate a massive brown bear 
and I don't know, nine foot, 10 foot big that was standing over two fishermen hiding in the grass trying to find him. And it was like do or die. And fortunately, the bear died instead of the people. So, okay, Mike, Wisconsin. Question about firearms. Can you discuss, Ron, what your opinion is of the 8.6 blackout? Oh, with the one in three twist rate, it's reportedly spinning at 500,000 RPMs. I don't doubt that. Um, that is incredible. I have not worked with this yet. I always say I'm going to, but I just have not found the time yet. But that little 8.6 blackout is really something. And then the whole thing with that is it's just a little beady cartridge pushing really big, heavy bullets, subsonic. I mean, you can shoot lighter ones and go supersonic, but the whole idea when they started this thing was to have a big, heavy bullet. So you had a lot of momentum. And then if you shot it under about a thousand feet per second and put a suppressor on the front of the barrel, you could shoot very quietly and address those feral hogs, those feral pigs without spooking the whole flock and be more effective. And yet that massive bullet, and I think they go up to 300 grains on that thing, which is huge for the little powder supply that's pushing it. You can uh, be pretty effective at driving that bullet deep and taking out those hogs. And then they say that that incredible spin rate, one in three inches, imagine that a complete revolution, 500,000 RPMs, that bullet's going to be doing some damage in all directions of its spin, especially if it, it just expands a little bit. Don't need a lot of expansion. Just need to get some ragged edges on the front of it. And it's kind of like a blade going through there. And they've shown some videos with some pretty obvious lateral pressure destruction from that rapidly cycling bullet. It's pretty crazy stuff. But that's about the most I know of it. If you want to really get into it, just do some research online and it'll get you to the manufacturers and different people who have been using them. And you can read up on what's been happening with that one. But I think that might just, it just might lead more people to experiment with higher twist rates. Um, it's not going to work all the time with all cartridges and all bullets, obviously. But if if you start sacrificing some muzzle velocity for a heavier bullet and then make up for that with a faster twist, maybe you're going to get the same or even better of terminal effects. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Worth watching. In Utah, we have something from Tyrell. And he asks... As early as I can remember, I've had a love for the outdoors. Well, he's not asking anything. He's just sharing with us. That's fine. 
I have tried about every outdoor activity at least once. Now I am broke college kid who has gained a love for creative writing. Oh, I love the way you write. It's very creative and you have a way of taking the reader into your story. Well, thanks so much for that, Tyrell. That was unexpected, but appreciated. You have been my biggest inspiration as a young writer. Oh, now you're starting to make me blush. I would like to start freelance writing, but I don't even know where to start. Do you have any tips for an inexperienced writer who would like to start publishing short stories about the outdoors? <laughs> oh, wow, that's a different question. But I've half-jokingly, tongue-in-cheek said to others over the years who've asked me this, yes, my best advice is don't do it. <laughs> but obviously, I'm being a little facetious here because I did it, and I'm surely having fun. But the reason I said that was when I started back in the 1970s, it was possible to make a living doing this. There were so many magazines and they paid not really well, but well enough that if you cranked out enough volume, you could do pretty well. And obviously it worked for me because I continued it as a full-time career. Um, so these days you've got so much information on the web and so much of it is free, but a lot of that free information was actually paid for by the people who support those websites, especially manufacturers. There are a number of magazines online, Outdoor Life Now, I think, and Field and Stream, too, are both online only. Most magazines that are still in print also have an online version, so they need stories for that. And the good news is they need more stories now than ever because there's so much competition. You just Google something and you come up with a 100 uh, several thousand different options for where you can go to get this information. So they're competing to get the best writers with the best information, et cetera, et cetera, on their websites. And the pay rate's not through the roof or anything, but you know, you're going to get paid for your time to a degree. Um, I see quite often anything from 50 bucks up to perhaps $1,000 for the online stuff. Magazines are somewhere in the same category. They're generally starting out at $300 up to $500. With, every once in a while, you'll get 1000 One or two publications might go a little higher than that. But that's kind of what you expect. Now, run that against daily living and how much money you need to make and what's the average for the year and all that. And you realize you got to crank out a lot of material to make this work. And that kind of takes away from the joy of creating a story. And if you're loving to write because you want to hone your craft and get the words just right so that you really capture the moment and bring people in, like you said, you're probably going to have to spend a little more time at it unless you're one talented, magical writer. And some people are. They can just start off and tell you a story that has you mesmerized with no, <laughs> no practice, no anything. They just go. Wish I could do that. But yeah, that, that was it. Now, you wanted some more tips. Go to those websites and just ask them, find some way to go contact them and say, hey, what's your policy on writers and submitting copy? Back when I started, it was just, dear editor, here's a piece I'd like you to consider for your magazine. Send it in. We called it over the transom or cold. And they would glance at the first sentence, maybe the first paragraph, and if it hooked them, they would maybe read the whole thing and then go, hey, this is pretty good. I think I'll buy it. And that's how I got started. I always often told folks the first winter I decided to be an outdoor writer and sit down and actually do it. I wrote five pieces, sent them off to five of my favorite hunting magazines and sold all five of them. <laughs> and it was primarily because I had the passion for it. I had the basic experience. I'd been there, done that. And I knew those magazines and their slant. 
And I wrote to them knowing that this is what this one would like. This is what that one would like. So it's definitely possible to do. Definitely start doing it. Just write, write, write. Whenever the mood strikes you, you need to crank that stuff out. Build up. A, even if you're not selling them, you can work on them later, sell them later, whatever. But don't stop writing. Even if it's in part-time, you know, you got a regular job and you write in the evenings. Great. Keep at it. And the best of luck to you, Tyrell. I hope you make it. All right. From North Carolina, Chad. Mr. Spomer, I recently purchased a Winchester Model 70, a New Haven, new in box, and I was trying to figure out which type of scope would be a good choice for deer hunting. As you know, there is a myriad of manufacturers, models, magnifications, and options, uh, which makes for a local, a logical choice kind of confusing. Yeah, I hear you there. <laughs> so typically, my shots would be taken in the 100-yard range. However, there are times where two to 300 yards would come into play. Any suggestions for a good scope? I'm not looking for a $3,000 S&B or an El Cheapo, something in between. I do value your input and I appreciate you taking the time for me. Well, great. Thanks. That's from Chad. Now, Chad, you're absolutely right. There are so many scopes, but this is a good thing because that level of competition keeps the prices down. Everybody and his dog wants to sell you a scope these days. They've kind of all figured out what it takes to make a good high quality scope. And they can go to these factories offshore. Generally, it's Philippines, uh, Japan, Pacific Rim countries, Taiwan, I suspect, China, different places like that, to have them, the pieces made. And then they can have them sent here and assemble them in America. Or you can have the whole thing built over there. There's just all kinds of ways to do it that keep the prices down. So the quality is determined by what they specify in the materials of the two bodies. And then the, uh, the lenses. A lot of people will say, well, it's the glass that makes a difference. It's not so much the glass as the coatings on the glass. Yeah, there's, you know, good, better, and best on your glass and the lenses. But it's the engineering that... It puts it all together. It's really pretty complicated because of refraction of light. When you bend light, it goes from white light to the colors of the rainbow. And then you have to fix that and come back again. And there's all sorts of things to think about. Even the the metal, the materials within the lens, whether there's a magnesium in there and flint and the different things will change the light and the re refractive index of it and all sorts of complicated things. So they've got to have a sharp guy who knows how to grind those lenses, get just the right curvature to them. And then the next one in line has to make up for whatever went wrong with the first one changing the light. And oh my gosh, it gets complicated. So there's that. And then there are the dimensions uh, and the, the tolerances. I mean, that stuff has to be spot on or things get out of focus or the color fringing because you didn't get your lenses close enough and they're not hitting the exact focal point and, and focusing point and all these things. And then when you turn your dials, they've got to be accurate and on and on and on it goes. So that's why you don't want an El Cheapo scope, obviously. But then again, as you say, you don't need a $3,000 scope and you absolutely don't because there are some really, really good, if not outstanding scopes for $500. $1,000, certainly you're getting in right in there. And then the competition is pretty fierce. So what you look for Good quality construction with a good reputation. When you pick up that scope, you want to move it, adjust it, and say that everything turns smoothly, consistently. There's no grinding sounds or anything obvious like that. You can shine a flashlight down inside or look around, see if there's any scuff marks. Uh, generally, these days, they're all pretty clean. Um, and then 
zoom and until you shoot it, you really can't tell exactly how well it's going to perform on consistency from when you zoom. Say, let's say you go from 2x up to 10x. Well, you're moving things in that scope, and if they're not perfectly aligned, your reticle could shift anywhere around that circle as you're turning it up. You could move it up and left and right and who knows where. So you can test that on the range with an accurate rifle. You could test it on a grid if you can lock the scope down, and I often do this for my scope reviews lock it down and have that one square inch grid system out there and then just move things. And if it says you should have moved one inch, that reticle better move to the one inch line that you were moving to. So you can see that stuff. Most scopes these days are pretty darn accurate that way too. So then the other thing you look for are anti-reflection coatings on your lenses for brightness. Most of us go, oh, I need a 50 millimeter objective, a 56 millimeter objective. I got to have a big scope. I got to get a lot of lighting here. Oh my gosh, I'll never get any game unless I got this huge objective. That's only one part of the equation. The bigger part for brightness is the anti-reflection coating on the lenses. So what you want are fully multi-coated optics or lenses. All the lenses in that scope should be coated with multiple layers of anti-reflection coating. It doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't make the scope any bigger. It's a free lunch, except for the cost. <laughs> so this stuff is vacuumed. Uh, in a vacuum, it's deposited electrostatically or something, and it's magical stuff, but it really makes a difference in the brightness. It allows more light to go through that lens. So look for that. If you can get fully multi-coated lenses and then good solid quality in the scope build throughout, uh, you can get by yeah, quite easily with a 44 or 40 millimeter, 42 millimeter objective in magnifications up to 10. Uh, you can go higher and it gets a little bit dimmer because what comes out of the scope of the eyepiece is called an exit pupil. And you can see it. Hold the scope out in front of you at arm's length and look into the eyepiece. And you'll see there's a little circle of light there. That is the actual diameter of the tube of light that is coming out of that scope. And it has to match up with the diameter of your pupil because it's your pupil that lets light in. So if this little circle in the scope, when you're there at three and a half inches behind it, and you've got your sight picture, that little circle matches up and fits inside of your pupil. All the light coming through that scope gets into your retina and you see as bright as you can get it. If it's bigger, like a 50 millimeter at 10X would be five millimeter. And if your pupil is dilated down to four millimeter, that extra millimeter of light, that rim, just bounces off your iris. You don't take advantage of it. The thing is, the human eyeball, it probably shrinks down to about 2.5 millimeters in bright sunny day. And then as the light goes down after sunset, it starts to open. It dilates bigger and bigger and bigger till a maximum of about seven millimeters. And that's where the bigger front ends are going to give you a little bit more advantage. Now your five millimeter opening in your exit pupil is going to get into your pupil to hit your retina. So it's a little bit brighter. But what I have found over the years of testing lots and lots of scopes, if I can keep a four millimeter exit pupil and then my lenses are all fully multi-coated. Uh, I, I can see my reticle on a deer an hour sometimes after dark. Uh, seems crazy, but if there's any kind of ambient light left in the sky, especially if there's a moon out, you'll be amazed at what you can see, that little black crosshair on a deer, the side of a deer out there at 100 yards or something. And of course, that's way past legal shooting light in most places. Half hour after sunset in most states is like the end of shooting light. 40 millimeter at 10x is plenty in my 
experience and a little bit beyond that. But hey, suit yourself on that. You can get whatever size scope you want. But those are kind of the things you want to look for. I am not obviously mentioning certain brands and names that you want to get because there are so many darn good ones out there. And I don't want to shortchange anybody. You know an inexpensive scope when you hear about one. So just look for something that has a good reputation and a solid value with those things that I talked about and you should be fine. Now, if you want to dive into this a little bit more, I have several videos on Ron Spomer Outdoors, my YouTube channel, and one, one or two of them goes through what I just sort of discussed, showing it in the scope, and they show you the exit pupil and all this stuff, and, and give you the math for figuring out the exit pupils and wonderful things like that. So check those out. You can also go to my website, ronspomeroutdoors.com, and I've got several blogs on this topic. And it's a good one, too. This is something that we really need to know. Because not, not only to get the right scope, but to not get the wrong scope. Too many guys get sold on all the bells and whistles and the bigger this and the longer that and more powerful this. And, and they spend money that they don't have to spend because you really don't need a lot of these things. But the scope manufacturers put them on there because it's a selling point. Anytime you offer an American something bigger and better, he's probably going to be interested. So it really helps to understand how scopes work, what makes them work. And that's what I try to put into my blogs and my videos. So check them out and good luck in picking out your scope, Chad. Um, for the ranges that you're talking, something in the two to 10 power range is going to be more than plenty. Uh, yeah, you're going to probably end up using it at 4X to 6X more than anything else, but it's nice to have that little extra magnification for those long shots. And who knows, you might go out west sometime. So uh, good. Thanks for that one, Chad. Now, I think, yep, that's it. No more questions on this one, guys. So hey, until next time, I want to thank everyone for all the questions you brought in, uh, especially our patrons. We really appreciate you guys. Uh, as soon as we get a Patreon question, we jump right on it and get back to those folks if we're here and not out hunting somewhere. Um, so if you care to join us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com and then Ron Spomer Outdoors, and it'll show you right there how you can become a supporting member of this broadcast and Ron Spomer's website and Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channels and all the other things we do here. We definitely appreciate that support, folks. More power to you. Thanks a lot. Hey, until next time, hunt honest and shoot straight.